We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right. Welcome tonight. Thank you for joining us here at the church and also on the computer if you're there. We are grateful for that. Uh, Tonight we're in Matthew chapter 19. I've often said that, and has been said, you know, over the past centuries, I'm sure our former pastor said it too many times, uh, something like this. One of the advantages of doing expositional preaching is that you hit all the sections in a book. And uh, so there's sort of safety in that you don't tend to gravitate toward your pet topics and leave others out. One of the disadvantages of expositional preaching is that you hit all the passages, even the controversial ones and uh, the difficult ones. And so we're in one of those this evening, but you know that we're just coming to it because that's the next on the list. We've finished Matthew 18 and we come to 19. Let me read with you chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So try to picture that in your mind on a map and get yourself uh, located, situated, if you will, oriented. Verse 2, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. There's the gift of singleness, as we call it. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that thus rather from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So this passage inevitably raises great controversy. I handle, or I trust that you and I can handle those differences between believers that we might have with grace and mercy. I've taught for years that the standard for Christians is no divorce, but if there is a divorce, no remarriage. That, to me, 
is clear, regardless of your emotions or experience in the matter, for, uh, from an, a later passage of the Bible, specifically written to the church in the church age, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, I'm violating one of my cardinal rules already of studying the Bible because I'm going to another passage other than the one we're looking at. But um, if I may illustrate it this way, I would say this, if you go, if you just open up to some random Old Testament passage and it talks about offering an animal sacrifice and you say, Pastor, it tells us to offer an animal sacrifice. Why don't we do that in the church? I would say, well, let me quickly orient you to where we are. We're not under the law of Moses. We're not under the regulations of an ancient nation, although it was governed you know, under the hand of God, largely, by the way, full of unbelievers that God was regulating with the law. He's not done that with the church in the same way as he did with the nation of Israel. So we have a different arrangement that he has settled for us. And in the church arrangement, he has made this clear. Basically what Paul is doing is taking what Jesus says here and he's expanding and clarifying on it because the Corinthians had questions about marriage. And he said in verse 10, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Could that be more clear? It seems to say what it means and mean what it says. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And then Paul completes the idea by saying basically, and the reverse is true too, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. This sounds an awful lot like no divorce, but if there is a divorce, no remarriage. That's where I get my statement from. That's the standard for Christians. We know that Paul is speaking to a Christian marriage here in verses 10 and 11 because in the next verses, he says in verse 12 and 13, he says this, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that he's overstepping the bounds of the Lord's words? No, he's saying Jesus didn't teach you about this particular topic in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 and other passages in the Gospels. I'm going to add what the Lord has taught me about this. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Okay, here's a, a, a Christian brother. His wife does not believe. Okay, so there, before it was two Christians married together. Now it's one Christian and one non-Christian married together. And the issue is, okay, what do we do then? And so Paul says, if the wife is an unbeliever and wants to stay, great. The Corinthians were getting all confused, like, oh, no, I got saved. Now I'm unequally yoked, so I better divorce my wife so I'm not unequally yoked. No, that's not the case. It says, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Okay, so even in that situation... If there is one Christian partner and one not, then the standard still is no divorce. However, if the unbelieving spouse divorces the believer, then there's another circumstance. The believer is not to be guilty of hard-heartedness in the matter, 
Uh, and then, of course, you know, there is a question about remarriage after this point. I take it that it's not advisable to be ad- uh, married again, given the commit adultery phraseology of later in our passage in 19.9, but we'll get there in due course. Um, and then for, for marriages that, have, that are both spouses that are not believers, the text doesn't address that. There's no specific instruction for pairs of unbelievers here because why? I think it's unlikely, you would probably agree with me, it's unlikely that two unbelievers are going to be much interested in what God has to say to them about marriage. Still, the general teaching about marriage does, does apply to them and they are expected by God to follow it and will be held accountable if they do not. Why is that? Long before there were Christians, long before there were Jews, long before there were believers, God created marriage. And he expects humanity to hold on to this substructural element of the human race, of society, and it's an expectation. You know, you so what the unbelievers don't care what God says? God doesn't care that they don't care what God says. Right? In other words, what I mean is not that he doesn't care about them or want them to follow. It's like he's not impacted. It's not like he's going to say, oh, well, sorry I said anything to offend you, unbelievers. You go ahead and live the way you want. I won't bother you. That's not, that's not how the scriptures present our God. He's the God of all creation, the God of all humanity. And he's given instructions. And when those instructions are violated, there's problems and there are consequences for that. And the teaching that is, is, is the standard is Matthew 19.6. What God has joined together, let not man separate. doesn't say if you're Christian or half your home is Christian or none of your homes are, are believers. doesn't matter. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So if two unbelievers are married, let me ask you this question just off the top of my head. Two unbelievers are married. Has God joined them together? Yes. Did God join Adam and Eve together? Were they Christians? It'd be hard to say they're Christians. <laughs> they didn't know much about Christ. But, uh, of course, that was before they fell into sin. But they were still married after they fell into sin. And I think it's the same. There's something that God does when two people in the society, a man and a woman, come together before witnesses, and solemnly promise to be for each other alone. God is, in effect, joining them together. And something strange happens where two become one. That's what happens. And so, what God has joined together, let not man separate, that applies to every marriage of all history in every culture. It's not like people can say, well... I don't believe in God, so God didn't join us together, so I can just blow off this stuff about marriage. At your own peril, go ahead. Wouldn't advise it. I turned our attention to 1 Corinthians because there is a lot of confusion in the Matthew 19 passage. Clearly, it fits under the prior administration of the law of Moses. And while also obviously teaching principles from that law that are expressions of God's immutable holiness, it does not deal with the breakdown of 
cases, case A, case B, case C. Well, what if I have this, Paul? What if I have this and all of that? It doesn't deal with that. It's just a general statement. But Paul breaks it down more in 1 Corinthians into subcases and specific details. We need that kind of breakdown sometimes because we're dull and slow what God is trying to explain. Now, let me just say at a high level, higher level here, maybe, maybe societal level, marriage is the glue that holds family and society together. With no-fault divorce and lack of marriage commitment in the first place, what I mean by that, you have people that get married and then they divorce. They just dispose of it. And then because they don't want to go through, people in society see that and don't want to go through divorce, what do they do? They don't get married. But they live together as if they're married. So divorce statistics can actually go down for a bad reason because marriage has gone down. But anyway, when, when there's no fault divorce and no commitment in marriage, society crumbles. The world can mock all they want at Victorian prudishness. Have you heard of that? What kind of Victorian values are those? We're in the enlightened age. We've, we're on the vanguard of things. You know, We're avant-garde here. We, we don't live by those old rules. But the reality is the reality. Discarding those old values has left us in an undeniable mess. Undeniable mess. Ask children who have come from broken homes. Which would have been better? For your parents to love one another and stay together or for them to fight and squabble and squawk and get divorced and fight over you all the rest of your young lives? Every single child would say they would rather have had a stable home with two parents that loved one another. There can be no argument, no rational, no reasonable argument about that. So what did the Lord teach about divorce? We won't get through all of this tonight, but let's look at the part we can get to. Verses 1 and 2 is the setting. The Lord has just finished his teaching in chapter 18 about humility, about little ones who believe in him, about lost sheep, remember that? Great joy in heaven over the sheep that repent. Um, About unrepentant brothers, how to handle that situation in the church and before the church in your personal life, and how his followers must be forgiving people. That was our message uh, this last Sunday about uh, forgiveness and unforgiveness. So he, he was in Galilee when he gave those teachings. Actually, he was north of there, and he came down to Galilee. Remember, he was entire in sight in that area and came down the north, north part of Galilee and then down. Well, he left that region and came down to Judea, but it was the portion of Judea, which, although it's commonly called Judea, was on the other side of the Jordan River. That means on the east side of the Jordan, on the far side as the sun, where the sun rises, so to speak, in the region that we call by another name Perea, P-E-R-E-A, Perea. It was under the administration of Herod the Great um, before. Uh, Today, it's in the country of, anybody know, the other side of the Jordan? What country? Testing your geography here. Now you're looking at your maps now, seeing. It's Jordan, okay, Jordan. Immediately over the Jordan River, and the capital of Jordan is, anybody? Amman, isn't it? Amman, Jordan. That's actually where Jesus was. If you just go farther east, 
you would come to Amman, northeast of the top of the Dead Sea. Um, the Lord continued to teach, I think. Uh, it doesn't say that specifically, does it? We finish these sayings. He departed from Galilee, came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and multitudes, great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Well, if great multitudes are following the Lord, what do you suppose he was doing? Keeping his mouth shut? I doubt it. He was teaching them, but also he was providing healing for them. Uh, healing for, for three categories I just came up with quickly. I'll start with the letter D. Disease, disability, and demons. And, of course, preaching the faith. So while he's doing that, the ever-helpful Pharisees uh-huh, come along just looking to be helpful, Jesus, and give him a test of his wisdom. It says, verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Of course, they weren't testing him to see how good he was. They were testing him to try to get him to fail, right? Sick, sick way that they were thinking. So they brought a question to the Lord, a test question, we'll say, an exam question, but a test to get him to fail. And their question was about divorce. But I want you to notice the specifics of the question. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, the law of Moses was clear that divorce was a thing in ancient Israel. You know what I mean by a thing? It happened. It's mentioned in the law. Uh, and you look in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, uh, that's where you'll find kind of the classic passage that everybody goes to. Uh, there's others that are connected to it, but or related to it, rather. But it says in 24 of Deuteronomy, whenever a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is the abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, you may not have an easy time understanding exactly what that means because you haven't been brought up in the kind of clean, unclean society where that's just built in part of the culture and thinking. And frankly, I'm not going to try to explain that part of it right now. I don't understand it fully myself, to be honest. But we know enough to say that if God said it was an abomination, is an abomination. And this kind of what basically was ending up happening was this kind of wife swapping back and forth kind of thing, and it's just sick. And you can understand that, I hope, I hope and trust. Um, so if you just kind of put it in those raw terms, then you get, oh my, that's pretty sick. But you notice that the, the kind of process is very, how can I say, stupid simple. You know, give a certificate of divorce. It's like they don't even have to really go somewhere to do that. 
Now, they made it a little more official, I think, by having the, there to be some involvement of the elders at the gate of the city, so it would not just be, uh, you know, willy-nilly all the time happening, but uh, it, it could have happened this way directly with no other involvement. And, uh, you know, there's got to be some regulation here. So this is regulated by God. I hesitate to say that God permitted it in the sense of, you know, in a positive way. Although, let's see, what does the Lord say? Um, it says in verse 8, He did permit you to divorce your wives. So I, I have to give my hat tip to the Lord's language in 1908. He said, God did permit you to divorce but I don't say it in the sense of he permitted like it was a good thing because he did not really want it nor permit it in a positive sense. In fact, he loathes it. But to keep some order in society and avoid anarchy, he regulated the sin of divorce. And he also made some provision to protect at least some sanctity of marriage and to protect women from being destitute or exploited. Uh, one of those uh, portions of Scripture that addresses that latter part about being destitute or exploited is in Exodus 21, 10 and 11. Don't turn there. But there it talks about if a fellow takes another wife, duh, then he cannot reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. He's not allowed to do that. That is wrong. If he does, then she's free to go, and he cannot just keep her because, by saying, oh, well, you're married to me, so you've got to stay. So there was a, a protections there that were not necessarily present in other societies or prior to the giving of the law. But I want you to notice especially also this phrase at the end of the verse. Their question was not just about whether divorce was lawful or not. It was about whether it was permitted, listen, for any reason at all. They wanted to know if basically no fault, any reason, no reason, free divorce and remarriage was permissible. Now, there was a debate between the different camps of the Jews in Israel at this time about this. I'm no expert on that debate, but I know that it did exist and there was a more conservative and a less conservative school. But the bottom line is they're trying to put the Lord on the horns of a dilemma and get him to fail this test, trying to trip up the Lord in some detail or inconsistency. Can you just imagine the attitude that says, okay, I'm going to ask a question and then I'm going to listen for the slightest inconsistency that I can get him on. What kind of an unloving, hateful attitude is that? That is terrible. But that's who they were. That's marked them. Don't be like that. So Jesus gave an initial answer. Then they responded with another question. Then he gave a second answer. And then the disciples come into the equation and say, wait a minute, what is all this about? And then the Lord answers the disciples. That's the back and forth that we have here in the narrative. So the question has been posed. Now Jesus is going to give the initial answer, and this is all I think we'll be able to get to tonight, not even all of this, I'm sure. The initial answer by the Lord. As he often did, the Lord sidestepped their testing by going to the core of the matter. You notice how he does this sometimes? 
He goes back to fundamentals, to basics, and shows them that their whole premise was wrong in the first place. They misunderstood the intention of God regarding marriage. So Jesus takes them all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and he says, haven't, you know, basically, haven't you read? Haven't you read your Bible lately? How's your Bible reading program today, Pharisees? Have you been reading through the Bible every year? In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we touched on that on Sunday night, didn't we? We talked about the gender spectrum. By the way, I found an even better verse uh, for that. Was, we mentioned Genesis 6.20, but actually Genesis 6.19 there says that um, when, when uh, Noah was to bring the animals onto the ark, he was to bring two by two pairs a male and a female. There it is, very explicitly, one plus one, male plus female. Anyway, uh, he created male and female. Genesis 5, 2, he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And then in 2.24, he refers back to this and says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. What Jesus does is he undermines the whole premise of their question by going back to the original intent and design of marriage. Do you find in Genesis 1 or 2 any mention of divorce anywhere? It's not there. Because the intention of God was one man, one woman for life until there was some event, death, which separated them from each other. That's it. So he concludes, Jesus does, from the above reading of these texts that the two have become one flesh. Something amazing and somewhat inexplicable has happened between the man and his wife and they're glued together and have become one before God as a new family, as a unit, physically as well as interpersonally. Furthermore, as they have become one flesh, God does not make any provision for the undoing of that in his original design. In other words, you go back and you look at the Genesis 1 and 2, that's the instruction manual. There's no exception clauses. There's no like, oh boy, now there's big mess up, so now we've got to write new instruction pages. That's later on. That's Deuteronomy, that's Ephesians, that's you know, this portion here in, in Matthew 19. Um, there's no provision in the original intent for severing, changing the one flesh relationship. So the Lord Jesus concludes that God intended for that relationship to stay that way until death severed it. By the way, death is a very powerful thing. You know, death severs the relationship of your body with your spirit, right? It takes the two and separates them. So clearly it has that kind of power which would then result in the separation of a man and his wife if the man dies or the wife dies, then they're separated too by death. But there is no other legitimate way. Well, we could say the rapture, I suppose. You know, today the rapture could do that. Um, but death is a powerful thing. But the initial creative statement by God is how he intended things to be. And the Lord's contention and my contention in agreement with that is we ought to stick with the program, stick with the original program. The Lord then applies this truth by saying, what God has joined together, man must not separate. That's verse 6.
since the divorce is the separation that we're talking about, he is saying this, what God has married, man must not divorce. Man must not divorce. So uh, in our society, I think maybe when we read this, we think like man, man must not divorce. So we think, okay, the man and his wife, when they divorce, they've done a sin before God. Yes. But let me encourage you to remember this. Uh, is the woman, just, this is a different thing altogether. Is the woman who gets an abortion the only one to blame for that abortion? Who else? Well, the man who probably encouraged her to get the, the abortion, and who else? The doctor who does the abortion and the nurses that operate at that clinic and the whole program and Planned Parenthood who pays for or whatever. The same thing in divorce today. It's not just the husband and the wife. It's the divorcing judges, the friends of the court, the lawyers that are involved in what God has joined together. Let not man separate any man. Any man helping, any man receiving money for that, any man in a judgment position for that. You've got to think, are you, as you're, like, if your job was helping people get divorced, is that a job that a Christian can really do? Let's be honest. If what God has joined together is not to be separated by man, what are you, man? Who are you, O oh man, to be doing that to God's special creation of marriage? So let me conclude this way. If I were to boil down the Lord's answer to the Pharisees when they ask, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? The answer is no. No, it's not. That's not God's design. God does not permit you to divorce your wife for any reason at all. In fact, he does not really permit, in the sense of positively permitting you to divorce at all. Now remember, I did clarify or qualify that statement by saying God has regulated it in verse number 8. And so the Lord does use the word permit. I'm using it in a slightly different sense, not trying to contradict at all. I hope you understand that what I'm saying is that the Lord permitted it with sadness in his heart. Not happiness. Not like, oh, this is a great thing. Not at all. It's not that kind of permission. It's the kind of permission of permitting hard-hearted people to do what they're going to do because he's turning them over to their reprobate minds, right? Romans chapter 1. God permits that in that sense, but it's not a good permission. Anyway, we're going to stop there, and we're going to have to pick this up and, and finish the rest of it, uh, maybe, Lord willing, Sunday night as God permits. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of the Word of God, and I pray that it's elevated in our minds the importance of the of constructive marriage that you have made. Help us to take it seriously and to work hard at our marriages, those of us that are married, uh, because if we are, however that came about, if it was not in the best way or we weren't believers or we had previous divorces or whatever, we understand, Lord, that Scripture teaches us that doesn't matter. Now, if we're married, we're to keep that marriage vow and we're to keep things 
the way you want them to be. So we pray your help, each one. Thank you for this portion, and thank you for the clear answer that the Lord is indicating to the Pharisees. No, it's not okay for any reason. Would to God that people in today's society would understand that irreconcilable differences is not an acceptable before God excuse for a divorce. Lord, help us, I pray. And uh, of all people, may we Christians be those that are faithful one to another. In Jesus' name, amen.